everyone and welcome to Two Lips, One Mic. I'm Anna. And I'm Bushy. So we're back again after a long hiatus. So we thought we'd do things a little bit differently this year. Um, for long-time listeners, we generally do a New Year's special sort of every year and there have been some components that we've done but we thought given that this marks the end of a pretty big decade, we do a bit more of a uh, sort of all-round wrap-up of the decade that was. So the 2010s, I guess, would be best uh, encapsulated by the rise of Instagram, Kim Kardashian, and the evolution of Taylor Swift. <laughs> so um, to start off, 2019, the final year, what is your word to describe it? So how about we recap about what our words were last year mm-hmm. and what we think the word is best to describe this year. So we recorded our first New Year's Eve episode back in 2017. And in 2017, I used the word resilience building to describe that year. And that was basically a product of all the significant change that had undergone that year. So I had moved back from Darwin to Melbourne. I had uh, changed jobs, I'd come out of a long-term relationship, and my living situation was pretty uncertain. So that required me to do a lot of work uh, on myself to make sure that I could actually manage those changes properly. Um, And then last year, and full disclosure, I did listen to last year's episode in anticipation of recording today's episode. Um, Last year, I described my year as transformative. Um, for similar reasons to why I described 2017 as resilience building, because there had still been a significant amount of change. Mm. Um, you know, I bought an apartment, I changed jobs again. Um, I had some significant health issues that caused me to be hospitalized for a period of time. Um, so yeah, two really big years. Um, so in comparison, this year feels quite anticlimactic for me. Mm. And listening back on last year's episode, um, I actually thought that I would hijack your word um, from 2018. And I would describe 2019 as a year of consolidation. Mm. So this was the first year that my relationship status remained unchanged. That's true. It was the first year that I actually stayed in the job that I started in. Um, And it was the first year that I actually stayed um, in the same living situation. So I think I really needed that year after going through some pretty big years. Um, And yeah, I was also able, because those sort of big areas of my life remained constant, I was able to then sort of reinvest in other areas of my life. So, you know, I was able to like go to therapy more regularly. I was able to kind of invest in my social circles more regularly. So, you know, we've got this book club that we go to monthly. Um, I started playing netball every week. So, yeah, a year of consolidation for me, I think. Well, I think you say it's consolidation now, but you're about to light a match to all of that, (laughs) given that you've just quit your job and also... um, Don't know where I'll be living. (laughs) Yeah, and I feel like a few of us are sort of in that similar boat. Mm. Like, I think I felt really lucky in our um, very close friendship circle that no one is really following that traditional trajectory. So... In my life, there seem to be two um, paths. One is people doing the really traditional domestic stuff because we are in our late 20s now, so Mm -hmm. everyone's kind of getting married, um, buying their first homes and having their first children and that type of thing. But in our friendship circle, somehow it seems like all 
like four of us mm. um, are all really uncertain about what's to come next year and not mm. necessarily in a negative way. It's a, a choice that we've been able to make by virtue of the privilege of our education and mm. also um, having had a few years in the workforce. But it does seem like um, we're all kind of in that same boat next year of uncertainty. Absolutely. And for me personally, I think it's amplified by the fact that we are entering not only a new year, but a new decade. Yeah. And I am also about to turn 30. So it just seems oh, like yes. a period that's right for, yeah, like, um, but yeah, you know, you're right. Like sort of starting afresh, it just seems to be such an opportune time to do now. So all the more reason that I think it's been so important for me to have this year of consolidation in the lead up to what's probably going to be a big year of change. Mm. So due to your diligence, I was reminded of my words for the last mm. two years and, um, consolidation was my word of last year for similar reasons that you said which was I was in the same job despite the fact like every six months I'd have to reapply for it and go through the whole um, painstaking process of wondering whether I'd be doing it or not Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, same housing situation like pretty much the same everything Mm -hmm. Um, and so I guess I'm at the next stage of that this year I think this year, um, for me, the word would probably be to describe it would be like turbulent Hmm. um, and a bit directionless in a sense as well. Um, So for those who don't know, this year I quit um, the job that I've been doing for a number of years um, and I left a pretty stable position to take on um, just a 12-month project um, doing some pretty interesting things that I had absolutely no experience in doing and I guess that decision was made a lot in haste I mean there were some pretty bad things going on at in my car in that existing role at the time and so I don't think I put as much thought into it I was more driven by like I remember doing the job application on like you know had a spat with my manager on a Friday and literally on the Saturday I was filling out new job applications. And this job that you have now was the first job that you actually applied for. Yeah, I didn't even apply for anything else. Yeah, people usually go through a grace period (laughs) when they decide to leave a job and start a new job. Like they'll often, you know, look at what's out there, apply at a number of places, go to a number of interviews and then kind of reach a consensus. Whereas for you it just happened like a whirlwind. It all happened so quickly as well because it was just like, literally applied for the job um, and then within like the week was interviewing for it and then the following week was offered it. So it was really like way too quick Mm. Um, and I think at the time because there was just too many things going on like workplace-wise, like the politics of work and all these things and like recognising there were going to be particular obstructions to me being progressed in that workplace, Mm. I just made the decision to um, like quit, which – I think is supposed to be a big deal. But for me, I was like, eh. Mm. Um, and did a lot of other crazy shit in the, like, you know, my hour and a half long exit interview. I think that's because you've had such an unconventional work history though. Like, you know, you have turned down jobs, you've taken gaps yeah. in your job hunt. So maybe what would seem like cataclysmic for someone else is really just another step in their career trajectory for you? Well, I feel like it's paid dividends off dividends for me um, thus far. Mm. Like, this job um, is crazy. And, um, you know, I would anyone who knows me very well knows it's been a very challenging job. 
a challenging environment and just, you know, things like staff shortages and, and stuff like that has made it very difficult and really having to push me to my absolute limits in terms of stepping up and taking leadership and, and learning as quickly as I can. But um, overall, I don't regret it. Like even mm. in the worst periods of this job where I've bitched and moaned about it, mm. I don't regret the decision to leave. But having said that, it was unconventional because it doesn't – It's not. A, it wasn't like a necessarily a strategic decision. And none of my – I don't think any of my moves in my career have been particularly strategic. Like I usually just apply for things that pique my interest. And this was because it was sort of like a once in a career type opportunity mm. to work on a really interesting project that probably won't happen again. And it's a niche area of law. Having said that, it's not necessarily transferable, I think, to any other sort of um, legal role. And so next year I will have to be thinking about that and I think I found myself being more anxious about what's to come next year mm-hmm. I guess because I have more to lose this time as opposed to last time where I like uh, quit my job because like my primary focus was getting better and getting well and my health and that type of thing whereas now like you know um, I've overcome a lot of those mental health struggles and um, I'm at a place where I guess I am more critical about what I'm going to do next, mm. which has been quite surprising for me because, like, you'd think that, like, quitting your job when you're unwell and don't know when you're going to get well would cause more anxiety. But, um, no, I found myself actually more anxious about what's to come next year. I think we're also at that stage in our careers where we need to manage work with other priorities in life. So... If it is the case that we want to settle down and have families, then we want to be at a certain point in our careers. Whereas when we initially entered the workforce post-uni, I wasn't even thinking about stuff outside of work. So I do think there's a lot more at stake at this stage in our lives and our careers. No, I, I agree. I think there there does seem to be more at stake now. And I've, I've thought about that in terms of... Because um, I've, I've also made it pretty clear to my like superiors... Probably a career-limiting move. But I did say to my boss that um, I wasn't sure that if my future was going to be in the law next year, like post mm. the end of this contract, um, because there are other things that I do want to do. But I do love being a lawyer. And I think once you've had a few years in the game, you do have more skin in the game. Mm, absolutely. And so it does make it harder to quit. Like I think if I was like a first-year student... I'd find it much easier to quit. Mm-hmm. Um, not student, a first year graduate lawyer, and I hated it. Mm. And I don't. And that's the other thing. I don't hate it enough to quit. But um, is that the test? Well, I was actually listening to um, a podcast by Sarah Holloway. I think her last name's Davidson now, but she's the spoonful of Sarah lady, mm. owner of Much the Maiden, and she was working for um, one of the big. Um, I think it was Ashurst from memory. No, it was like. Mm-hmm. Mallison's or Freakers, oh, like right. a very big okay. prestigious law firm that all law students want to go to. Mm-hmm. And she was saying she she liked her job, like she was content doing her job, but then it was her quitting to do much her maiden and, you know, the rest of her social influencing stuff that made her realise that there's like an, another layer of happiness mm. that you can unlock. And she was like, it's quite shocking to me because I go around seeing like everyone's kind of okay with where they are, but there's more that you can be reached just by doing something you're deeply passionate about and that's 
what I think I'm chasing and I think I've spent a lot of this year trying to chase that passion. Me too. That's probably the primary reason for me actually taking time out of the workforce altogether so that I do sort of have that time to sort of sit with myself and really reflect on who I want to be and what I want to do and what makes me happy. I think the difficulty for both of us is that the areas of passion that we want to invest and work on have not been uh, compatible with well-being. Yes. Like for you, your passion is in the ALS space, Mm -hmm. so Aboriginal Legal Service, um, working with rural communities, working in like very complex criminal law um, cases that involve very complex and very damaged clients. And I think you know, when you were hospitalised, that was symptomatic of you not being able to reconcile the two. And I feel the same struggle. Like, I want to do a lot more in my career, um, you know, working in, like, the child protection space and doing things that actually interest me personally. But I also do know my limitations now. Mm. And I'm kind of, like, trying to juggle, like, am I being hindered by my own self-imposed limitations? I don't know, it's just, it's hard because, like, you know, I've had to do, like, both of us have done so much therapy over the years about how much we've pushed ourselves to the limits. Mm. And I think I still struggle with that because, you know, there's a lot of, um, like, you know, media influencers or, like, you know, all those quotes and stuff that, you know, you got to push yourself to the edge and you got to, you know, get to that level in order for you to actually get something worthwhile. But then when you've had, like, a health struggle... Mm. Um, that's the difficulty. Yeah, agreed. Um, and I don't know if there's any sort of easy answer to that either because I have sort of wrestled with the idea of doing work that perhaps I'm less emotionally invested in or perhaps demands less of a time investment. I think that would kill you, though. But exactly. I feel like that would kill me in a different way. And also why bother doing this job? Yeah, exactly. Like, Like, if you're going to give it all up to be a commercial lawyer, why bother? Yeah. And you know what? I just don't think that's how we're ingrained to be. Like, we're people that deeply care about the work we do and do require some investment in it. Like, I get that there are people out there that treat work as a nine-to-five job that, you know, enables them to, like, sustain a livelihood. Which is completely fine. And that's, yeah, completely legitimate. My parents definitely fall into that category. Same as mine. But... I am privileged enough to have been able to pursue my passions and do work that I care about and that serves a broader social good. And so I just can't imagine a world where I'm doing something that I don't care about. Yeah, I completely agree. And having – I don't want to be too put a fine point on it, but the work I've done this year, whilst has been very interesting, is not what I'm passionate about Mm. necessarily. Like – yeah, and so I, I've been on that end of it. And I think you, to probably some extent, have been yeah, on it too. I think so. Both of us. Um, and, you know, not to – it's not to be ungrateful for the positions we have. They're great jobs mm. and they're just probably not the right jobs for us, uh, for me in the long term anyway. Mm. Yeah, same. So um, I think this year has definitely been an indicator that, like, passion is something that is necessary for, for me anyway, to grow in my career. And maybe it's just a case of us developing the sort of, you know, tools that we need 
in order to better manage the challenges that come with doing work that we're passionate about? That's true because I think both of us have also, in our last jobs, I feel like we've had very parallel um, careers, Mm. but in our last jobs, overly invested passion Mm. and leading to detrimental things. Like, so a lot of my conflict and stuff at work was mostly nothing to do with the job itself. And I think you're probably the same. same. Um, It was mostly to do with like really stupid shit. And I think because I was so deeply passionate about the work I was doing, I was getting really personally angry Mm. about how much time and energy was being detracted into useless shit that took us away from doing what we were actually meant to be doing, Mm. which is my passion. And so I feel like I've been stung in that sense. Like, I don't think I've cried that much at work. Like I was saying to my colleagues um, in my current job, I was like, yeah, I probably cried about like over 10 times at work. And everyone was like, what the (laughs) fuck? And And all the times I cried, it was nothing ever to do with the clients itself. It was due to like, frustration or anger at the bureaucracy that was like hindering us from being able hindering me from being able to do the job I was paid to do but also what I was passionate about doing Mm. and so um yeah I'm I'm sure you probably had something similar yeah no I mean I loved the content of the work I was doing in my last job it was like you said all the stuff sort of surrounding it that made it unbearable um so Like I said, I don't know if there's any sort of clear-cut answer to that. Um, I definitely know that there are some sort of tools that I've developed through this current job that I'd like to take with me into any future job. So, um, you know, last year when I was experiencing struggles with my previous job, I was not going to therapy regularly. I was not journaling regularly. I was not, like, investing in my physical health regularly. Um, And I think all of those things have been really positive developments for me that I would just have to take into a future job with me in order to better manage any sorts of challenges that might arise. Mm. I guess the issue for me also was, though, that I re- literally didn't have the time to do some of the things that I can do now. That's true. Like, you didn't have time to do book club. You didn't have time to no. play sports and stuff like that. And so... So maybe there's a middle ground there, you mm. know. Maybe we can find work that we're passionate about but that doesn't actually cost us our emotional and physical well-being. You know, I'm a hopeless idealist, so I'd like to think that is a possibility. But I think we were young going into our last jobs. Like, we've grown a lot, and a lot has happened since. Like, a lot of health, mostly health-related mm. stuff, has happened since. How about we move on to mm. our decade? Yes. Um, so yeah, given what you said about the fact that, you know, we're approaching both a new year and a new decade, we thought it would be timely to reflect on the last decade, um, and specifically sort of the top three things, whether they be lowlights, highlights, personal developments, professional developments, um, that would sort of characterize the last decade for us. So did you want to start? Well, let's start firstly, I think you suggested this, where were you 10 years ago? Mm. Okay. So, 31st of December, 2009, Um, I was 19 years old and I was in my second year of uni, so I would have just completed my second year of arts and my first year of law. Um, I was working part-time as a tutor. (laughs) Big W. Uh, 
Big W started a bit later, actually. Um, I was living with my parents in Mount Waverley. And I think on the whole, I was quite lost. Um, So how was was second year Cushy feeling about her future, her career? I think I felt like my studies were a way out of my personal situation. So, you know, you and lots of other people know about some of the struggles that I had growing up. And your parents were probably listening. Yes, and they've heard previous episodes, so they're not going to be put off by what I'm about to say. Um, But, yeah, there were a lot of struggles growing up, and a lot of those struggles were centred around financial instability. And for me, um, like you, I think, we've always viewed education as a means of social mobility and so I always thought that if I studied hard enough and I worked hard enough that I would then have the financial independence I needed to sort of live a better life than my parents did Mm. um so that was part of the reason actually why after first year uni I transferred from a purely arts degree into an arts law degree um because I thought law at that time lol um would offer more certainty in terms of sort of career prospects and career development Um, And there were certain... Not untrue. Not untrue at that time, at least. Um, And just there were, like, certain sort of attractions about law, like, you know, I loved writing, I loved speaking, um, I was quite interested in specific subject areas. Um, But I say I was lost because I never really felt like I fit at law school. Um, Like, I remember I didn't really partake in a whole lot of social activities when I did transfer into law. And when I did interact with people in law school, they had often lived completely different lives to me. Um, You know, they'd predominantly gone to exclusive private schools and they sort of all knew each other or of each other. Um, They had parents that were in the profession, Mm. either directly or peripherally. And so I just didn't have a whole lot of friends, if I'm completely honest. Um, I sort of had like my tight-knit group of like three friends um, that I carried with me for most of law school until the last year. Oh, you're not still friends with them? Um, no, I'm actually not, surprisingly. Um, yeah, they sort of all went down the commercial route. Um, not that that's the reason why you're not friends. <laughs> no, but, you know, I think you do sort of definitely sort of um, socialise in different circles when you are working different kinds of jobs. So it was just kind of like a natural transition. Um, you should have, like, it's a shame you didn't start uni a few years later because, like, I felt exactly the same way in my first year. Aww. Although, having said that, I mean, we went away just a couple of days ago and hearing Amelia, Annika and you talk about your experiences at law school was just so alien for me. Like, I, I didn't know sad. any of the, Yeah, I didn't know any of these people and what circles they floated in and out of. But having said that, I mean, obviously you also formed the view that these are people that, um, while, you know, they definitely sort of were part of your law school experience, that maybe they're not so much part of your experience now post-law school um, because you've kind of gone in different directions, I suppose. Yeah, look, they're not um, my closest group of friends, but they were lovely. They're all very talented and lovely Mm. people and I'm glad I got to know them. Mm. And, yeah, everyone's just kind of moved overseas or done other things, which is why we're not... Um, close yeah, right. friends anymore and that's just life I suppose mm. but um, I guess if it, it makes you feel any better like my I had ex- for first year I thought everyone was sort of interconnected due to the private school network yeah and so having gone to like 
a local government school not in the country. There seems to be some Ballarat Clarendon College that everyone in the country seemed to come from and it seems to be an exceptionally performing school. Right. Um, did not come from there. Hmm. And okay. also those people tend to make friends with all the people in um, the boarding house mm. college. Because they're living called. on campus. Exactly. Yeah. So I actually, first year, I didn't really have many friends. Mm. Um, I, like I, I made I was friendly to people, but no one that I really clicked with. It wasn't really Mm. until the end of second year, I think. Mm. And that took time. Like, I I think I wasted a lot of first year, like, not actually socialising. You struck me as really social. Like, you went to law school camp. You were going to 21st birthdays. 21st wasn't until, like, three years. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know. And and the trips away weren't until, like, Mm. much later. But, Mm. um... And I think there needs to be something done. And I, I think the law school tried to do as much as they could. Like, I remember all the LSS, um, you know, having to do with the buddy system and all that shit. But the fact of the matter is a lot of the people there already knew each other by virtue of those existing networks. And so I actually just found myself studying a lot of first year, which mm. is definitely not the way you should be doing university <laughs> because like law school is a very isolating thing if you don't have friends absolutely and so um and those networks you form at law school carry you through law school too and beyond mm. like I'm realizing now like everyone seems to like all the justices and judges and staff they all know each other from law school and mm. I have no doubt some of the people in my cohort will be our next prime minister will be our next um you know, Supreme Court justices, High Court justices. There was just so many talented people mm. that um, I feel like, yeah, it, it, it would have been good to get to know more people. Mm. Well, fast forwarding from 2009 Anna mm. to 2019 Anna, what would you identify as sort of the top three things that have happened over the past decade? Well, 2009 Anna actually was not 2009 Cushy because I'm a few years booked. Yeah, you're a few years behind me. So not two years. 31st December 2009, mm. I was on a fucking high because I just finished year 12 and uh, I was 17. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So I was two years ahead of you then. Yeah. Mm. So I just finished um, year 12, got my VC results, gone to Monash, which was like literally like a dream. Like I didn't think I would get do well enough to get into this university. We know this because you read to us from your year 12 diary (laughs) about how you were going crazy. (laughs) I was going crazy. Um, And it was just such a rough year that I think all I can remember is just elation. And, like, yeah, I still – I frequently think about um, that period of my life because it was so exciting, like, going to university um, and not really knowing what I was doing. I remember having to go and do subject selections and stuff like that and – picking the randomest majors for my arts degree. So I was going to major in politics, minor in bioethics, which now I'm just Bioethics? Yeah, I was like, what the? Yeah. Uh, Politics is a bit more predictable for you. Bioethics, not so much. Yeah. No, it was a really bizarre experience. Um, This just goes to show that no 18 or 19-year-old is fit to be making life decisions about their career. Agreed. Like... (laughs) You should, that's too much power to be yielding to mm. a, a, a nine, an 18, a 17 at the time, 17-year-old. Mm. Um, I was looking forward to turning 18 and being able to be legal and do all those cool things. Um, and to be completely honest, I did not have much of a thought for my career or future. 
I was just too excited in the moment. Like it was, mm. there was so much happening that was completely unexpected and um, it had been like a stellar year. So, Wow. So yeah, we were at really different points. You seem to be really excited and elated about life. I'm sure. Whereas I was very lonely and isolated. <laughs> but I'm sure for you two years prior, when you got into university, you would have also oh, been Oh, it was like, a completely different experience. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you were going to be where I was just two years later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so fast forward 10 years later, what are the top three things you would identify from the past decade? No restriction here. Top three things, um, of this decade. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing that I really realized was discovering and having a new appreciation for family and friends. I think Mm -hmm. when you're in your teens, it's really easy to be resentful of your family because, they're your family and often they're more of a hindrance than anything else. Um, and so I think these have been the formative years for actually developing those relationships with my parents, with my brother. And, um, especially when I was getting really sick, it was them who really supported me through everything. And, and, you know, we've had, um, other, like my dad's been sick and stuff like that as well. So it's, it's been a lot of that, and also friends, like what to go on what you were saying before about finding your core group of friends. I didn't really find that until yeah, the end of second year, really. Um, and uni became exponentially better after that. And through those core friendships with my closest friends from university, um, we went through a lot together. Um, there were a lot of there were um, deaths, and there were lots of really. Um, really full-on like grieving periods and you know mental health issues and and things like that which um I don't think every friendship necessarily will endure Mm. and I think when we went away this weekend um I forgot who mentioned it but they were like saying that one of their partners or ex-partners now was saying, I wish I had a group of friends like you, like that group of friends. And it's like, that shit doesn't happen organically. It takes a lot to actually cultivate mm-hmm. a friendship that's as strong as this. And we've been friends, like, I think Annika and I have been friends for about probably almost this decade, mm-hmm. this entire decade. Um, and others, like Amelia, are probably close to that period too and you're probably like the newest person to um that friendship circle but a lot of things have happened in that time and even in the time that I've known you a lot of things have happened too Mm. so um but being able to go through that with your friends is a is what makes it sustains yeah and so it's not just a matter of and it's usually guys who are just like oh I wish I had that level of intimacy with my friends and it's like well, it doesn't just happen overnight. Yeah, you need to invest the emotional labour required. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and just life. Like a lot of things yeah. happen in life. And, um, you know, being there is mm. something that defines a friendship. Mm. And so that's probably been one of my top three. My second thing about this decade has been the um, importance of health. And so I'm glad it's come at a relatively early period in my life, but if I wasn't, if I didn't get sick in 2017, it could have very easily been something that I would have deferred until I was in like my forties or fifties and in a much worse condition of health. Mm. Um, and the link between health and, um, and your brain, like stress, 
and that type of thing. So like that was something I really had to learn how to look after myself. So, you know, in my head, I always thought I look after myself. I go to the gym, I eat relatively healthy, but it was learning not to abuse your head. Mm. Um, and the link that that has with your physical well-being, one of my key takeaways from um, this past decade. In that respect, would you probably cite 2017 as the year that really brought that home when you sort of made that decision to leave one job and then you turned away another job and just really took that time out? I think it was like three or four months where you basically started from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had no choice. Like my body, like we were just reading my diary before (laughs) and it was out of control. Like if you read most of it, it was talking about like, you know, my um, IBS symptoms, a lot of like diarrhea related Mm. things. Like I couldn't keep anything down. I Mm. remember trying to eat pumpkin soup at work and Mm. I could barely get it down my throat. It was like just horrific. Like I could barely function. It was really, really difficult. I remember you calling me from Melbourne when I was in Darwin and you were telling me about a particularly bad day where I think you were on the train or the tram and you were like telling me oh my god Kush like my life has got to this point where I'm actually having to map out like where I'm going and where the toilets are in case I get like a bout of the IBS come on and I need to like go Yes. Like it was literally dictating it dictated my where you life. were going, what you were doing, who you were spending time with. Like yeah. Yeah. Actually. And it really just narrows down your life. Mm. Like in terms of I the notion of traveling mm. or going on a road trip absolutely terrified me. And it wasn't until I read Georgie Dent's book that I was like, this is actually something that happens to a lot of people. Like I heavily identified with that. I remember her saying she mapped out a route between her um, tra- her bus into her like high powered law job and like a specific cafe she could go into um, because like she had what was it? Crohn's disease, which is even worse mm. and extremely uncontrollable. And when it's, it's not like something you can feel coming on, it would just happen like that. And so it's, oh, it was awful. And mm. so I think that was one of the key, key learnings. And mm. I do try to take much better care of myself now. And um, even just reflecting on this, like the stigma that myself, I put on that period of um, illness was pretty astronomical given that, you know, we all spurt, are you okay day and all that mental health shit. But internally I, I had just internalized so much of my own stigma. Um, and I, I wonder if I did report it somewhere, but I do remember thinking it. Mm. Um, and my third and final point, um, top things of the decade, a lighter note, the evolution of Taylor Swift <laughs> so I was like a Taylor Swift fan from 2008 when she first released Love Story and she also had a Taylor <laughs> Swift album and I think she had another and it was when she released Fearless mm-hmm. but the so I was a fan of her during her country roots but this decade has definitely been the decade of Taylor Swift because we've seen her evolve from being that you know relatively like she was famous as a country bumpkin but she became a freaking pop star, 1989. So some of the highlights of her... That was my breakup anthem, that album. 1989. Such oh, a good album. So good. Like, I think... Um, I'm just trying to think which... So Red and 1989 were probably my favourites. Yeah, same. 
Um, I did not think too much of her Reputation album. Mm, no, me too. I think I listened to it once the whole way through. Yeah, and you then I was... listened to all the songs. Well, because I didn't want it to ruin Tay-Tay for me, so, you know. True. Small price to pay. And um, her recent album, Lover, it's okay. It's definitely a step up from the one before it. Not quite on the level of 1989. Mm. I think that was definitely the album of this, this decade. Mm. Um, okay, so those are mine. <laughs> What are yours? Wow, those are really good um, selections. Um, so I kind of approached mine a little bit differently. Um, so being the planner I am, I kind of took notes. <laughs> you were so diligent, by the way. And it is broad, so I don't blame you for taking some time to... Well, initially I was really overwhelmed when you suggested this as a question for this episode. So I thought, okay, how do I make this less overwhelming? Ah, I'll come up with categories. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's like the um, audio equivalent of um, tabby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just makes me feel a little bit more control, uh, in control of things. Um, so from a personal perspective, I think the top thing this decade has been achieving financial independence. Oh, yes. Um, because when I was thinking back to, you know, Cushy on the 31st of December 2009, I had no financial independence. At all. Um, right now, I, you know, have finished two degrees. I am working a full-time job that is paying me a good salary. Um, I have my own apartment. I am actually in a position where I can help people around me financially. Yeah, you are known for being a loan shark. Um, yeah, which I Minus never would shark. have thought. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm definitely nice. I don't charge interest on loans. Or even call in loans sometimes. Maybe we should be broadcasting your <laughs> loans. Um, you were by far the most generous person with loans that I know, though. Oh, thanks. Um, I, I think that's a product of my upbringing, though, because money was just so hard to come by, and I would have benefited so much from people being generous with me and my family. Um, but, yeah, you know, 2009 Cushy could never have envisaged being in a position where she was able to financially support her family and friends um, and was able to buy an apartment or was able to go on weekends away like we just did. Mm. Um, and to be honest, having that financial independence has really brought home to me how much money does impact on your quality of life. Um, and I hate to say that because that should not be the case, but I would not have most of the things I have now if it wasn't for the financial independence I have now. You also wouldn't have the choice to make some of the decisions you've been making, for instance, to invest in ethical super, Absolutely. to invest in an ethical bank. Quit my job yeah, to find myself. Job, yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about privilege. I could never have that if I didn't have financial independence. Um, weirdly, though, even though I now value the importance of financial independence and what it's achieved for me, it's also sort of brought home to me the fact that money isn't everything either mm. because at the end of the day, when I've sort of like been in my darkest moments, it's not money that's helped me. I mean, money's definitely facilitated certain opportunities that have been conducive to my health. Like I can go to therapy. Money that's does amazing. not lock you to sleep at night. Yeah, but it doesn't. Like, you know, and I've said this to you a number of times, but um, I am getting paid significantly more in my current job than I was in any job before it. But my quality of life has not changed in the slightest. And that's made me realise that, like you said before, that what actually sustains me is my relationships. Mm. 
my family, my friends, um, and just the people around me otherwise. Um, so that's been a huge thing for me this past decade and something that I hope to carry with me into the next decade. Um, and the second big thing of the last decade, and this is more from a professional perspective, mm. um, is my client interactions. This sounds like a job <laughs> interview. Answer. Yes. Future job employer, <laughs> please listen to this podcast <laughs> when deciding whether to employ me. Um, but no, in all seriousness, um, you know, we were speaking before about the fact that we're people that need to care about the work we do and be passionate about the work we do. And my clients have really brought that home for me mm. this past decade. Um, you know, interacting with people that, to be honest, I would not interact with in any other capacity. Um, people that have been as disadvantaged, if not significantly more disadvantaged than I was growing up. Um, and I think all of those client interactions have collectively brought home to me why I do what I do, that actually working in the law is a really privileged thing to be able to do, that you can actually initiate a lot of positive change through it. And I think it's really easy to lose sight of that, especially when all your friends well, not all your friends are lawyers, but if, if you roll in those But a significant number of them are, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's easy to lose. And I think I, I did lose a bit of that. Me too. I still think I have my moments. Like, you know, when we're like, oh, my God, our lives suck. We don't know what we want to do. Why am I not a senior lawyer yet? You know, you're <laughs> in your little bubble with all of your like-minded peers who've also been tertiary, you know, educated and are working white-collar jobs. But... I mean, in my defense for not getting promoted, it's because I want <laughs> power. I want power to actually drive things and sick Me decisions too. being made by stupid people. Me too. And you know what? That's another thing that the client interactions have brought home for me because I've so often been in situations where I have felt limited in terms of the assistance I can provide or the way that assistance is provided. But that's because we can't make decisions on, like, grants, for instance. Like, you know, when you were talking about your work in the Legal mm. Aid Commission, the way that the grant system works mm. there... As a junior lawyer, you've got absolutely no – you have to just work within the system. And in your case, mm. it meant working uh, unpaid. Yeah, exactly right. Whereas I feel like if I was in a more senior position, yes, there would still be limitations, you know, especially in the context of legal aid work, you're still subject to government funding and all of that. Mm. But at least I would be in a position to exercise more control within the limitations that are there. So, you know, if it comes to, for example, applying for an extension of aid on a grant that you have um, – I would love to be in a position where I, to some extent, dictate whether or not that extension is granted, as exactly. opposed to just being at the whim of someone that's more senior that's been there longer than I have. Yeah, and also just being like, sorry, I don't have the power to do that. I hate that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I just feel like, you know, whenever I sort of am having those really shitty moments at work or I'm questioning what I'm doing, I think back to my client interactions mm. and they just really give me that perspective that, no, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Like I, And I know it's so cliche, but I am a cliche in that sense, um, where I want to do work that is making the world a better place and I want to do what I can to leave the world in a better place than I found it. See, I love hearing that because I think that's when I talk about the word, like my word of the year, turbulent, mm. but also unmoored and directionless. I think it's because I've lost that because mm. my current job um, doesn't have as much client interaction on that level mm. and so I have kind of lost perspective on like what am I doing and so mm -hmm. I think um, I yeah I love hearing that I think 
And you know what? It, it's weird. We are sort of leading parallel lives in that respect because even though I still do have client interactions in my current role, mm. um, they are far less than in my previous roles. And I've also felt the impact of that. Yes. I think especially for you, you're very deeply compassionate and empathetic and not having that mm. feature as a day-to-day part of your role. Um, yeah, I can mm. see why that's had quite a detrimental impact on. And that's the stuff that carries you through when everything else goes to shit. You know, I remember even when you were sort of having your challenges in your previous workplace, you would be like, oh, but I love speaking to the teachers, like the people that I'm actually helping day to day. Like that's what carries you. Yeah, I don't give a shit about my corporate clients. but Because yeah. <laughs> I don't. It's just like, what are you? Like you're not actually doing anything that has any sort of like yeah. purpose or <laughs> like, – I'm really. sure there would be some capitalists that would disagree, but I agree with you. Yes. I don't think so. I think like, like what am I here to do? Yeah. Well, in the scheme of things, if someone asked me who's contributing more to society – you know, um, multi-venture capitalists or teachers, then I know what my answer would be yeah. and where I would want to be, like, allocating my resources. Which is unfortunate for me now because, like, all my clients are essentially corporate clients, mm. which is, like, fine, but they don't have that level of investment in – like, you're not – it's not you – like, you don't have as much skin in the game mm. as a corporate client, mm. having been a corporate client. And so I just, yeah, no, I definitely think that's a good point. Yeah. And so hopefully you'll find a job that actually does feed into that mm, thirst. Mm, yeah, exactly. And not cost me my, you know, mental and physical health. Mm. Um, and my third top thing from the last decade, and I sort of also took a different tact with the third thing, was um, the rise of women over the past decade. Yes. And I suppose Taylor Swift is a prime example of this, but there are many others too. Um, because when I was thinking back to, you know, what's happened over the last decade, like initially I was looking at Australia and I was like, oh my God, this was the decade where Australia got its first female prime minister. True, Julia Gillard. Yeah. This is the first decade where Julia Gillard made that, you know, incredible speech in the Australian parliament calling out. Tony Abbott and just all other sort of, you know, your men's um, on their fucking misogynistic bullshit. Um, This was the decade where we've just had some incredible leaders of social movements. Like we've got Greta Thunberg when it comes to the environmental movement. AOC in the States. Oh, amazing. Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. Um, And yes, I mean, I will concede that on the whole – um, there hasn't been enough intersectionality in the rise of women. Like, still, we're predominantly talking about white middle-class women, but I feel like that's slowly but surely changing as well. Um, I feel like there are younger women getting involved or people of different cultural backgrounds, people of different socioeconomic classes, like um, AOC, for example, very working-class background. Mm. Greta Thunberg, she's, what, 16? Um, I love that the, um, the Republicans were trying to discredit AOC and her, like, because she used to work as a waitress or something. Yeah. How were they trying to discredit her with that? Well, they were just saying, I don't know, they were, they were trying to use that against her. And I was like, what? Like, that's, that's a selling really point. alienating. Yeah. Like, I would like to know what she thinks about the economy, given that she's, like, at the coal face of it. Think about the proportion of the American population working in the hospitality sector. Exactly. <laughs> they might have something to say about that. I was actually going to – I was thinking you were going a different tack with that, which was mm. more the Me Too movement. That was my other thing too, yeah. yes. Um, yeah, I mean, 
yes, that kind of stuff, you know, still goes on nowadays. But the fact that it's actually been cool now, the fact that... Um, Very big, powerful players like yeah. oh, Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, and, and listen, like, you know, that process has not been free of sort of its own criticisms. Like, I think there's talk now about him, like, settling with a lot of the different accusers and sort of, like, um, foregoing criminal prosecutions in that way. But even the fact that he's been, like, publicly outed mm. and publicly having to do these settlements, whereas once upon a time every single woman was having to sign a non-disclosure agreement and would basically, you know, lose out on her whole career, like, that is such a step in the right direction. I also think it's had a very big impact, the Me Too movement, on the way we conduct business. Like, um, a lot of, even just the Christmas season that's just happened now, mm-hmm. HR is a lot more hands-on, uh, no pun intended, about um, <laughs> sexual harassment and behaviour that takes place at those events. Mm-hmm. And so whilst in the past they might have had a bit of a blind eye to it, I think um, from a litigation perspective it's much more like evident mm. um, than it has been previously because women are more likely to, you know, reach out and mm-hmm. say, me too. Mm. Um, Has there been us. any backlash to that? The Me Too movement? Or, no, not the Me Too movement specifically, but that sort of um, sort of public awareness around sexual harassment and sexual assault. Like, I, I, can, imagine, so. I can imagine PC people being like, what, so you know, we can't drink anymore with our colleagues and, oh, what, so we can't flirt at all? Like, Well, no. It's funny because <laughs> um, at my workplace they forced everyone to do equal opportunity training, which is essentially like anti-sexual harassment discrimination training. And um, some of these scenarios were posited as examples and people were you're supposed to workshop mm-hmm. them. And one of them was like, um, would you let a colleague massage you at work or give you a massage? And that caused a lot of uh, confusion. Really? No, depending, I mean, everyone's a group of lawyers. It was mm. a group of lawyers, so you could argue either way. But um, it was, yeah, I, I think there were definitely those voices. And mm. in my group anyway, it was amongst sort of the older generation who had been doing this and gotten off scot-free for ages and not, mm. not having to think about how people feel or how uncomfortable it could make people feel. Um, and this is something that happens across all law firms, across the judiciary. I mean, there were some pretty big, mm. high-profile cases in the magistrate's court of this happening too between a magistrate and law clerks and uh, – registrar, sorry. And so it – you know, um, I think it's slowly happening, mm. but it is going to take a big re-education of particularly older people um, – to get their heads around it. Because I think, yeah, a lot of them are, are sort of spouting the same views that you've just parroted there. Yeah. And I suppose having the conversation and the exchange of ideas is so important because there is a broad spectrum of views when it comes to issues like this. Like what was considered sexual harassment once upon a time is different to what's considered sexual harassment now. Like, you know, the times mm. are changing, attitudes are changing. And obviously that's unsettling to people, especially if they've been used to sort of thinking, feeling, and behaving in a certain way. But, like, I'm even open to being challenged on some of the things that I say, do, and feel. But like, that, yeah, but you're much less defensive, I suppose. I remember um, I'm going to try and be as, like, oblique about it as much as I can. But at one time I was um, one of my previous employers, there was a massive sexual harassment 
anti-discrimination um, investigation that took place. And the findings were pretty damning because it was predominantly a male um, dominated environment. And I, having working with like um, people who were on the ground and being a very young, impressionable lawyer at the time, a lot of them were just saying like, this is going too far. It's progressing mm. women. It's like putting women ahead of men um, for promotions. And like, there was so much backlash over this report by like the Equal Opportunity Commission, which is like a well-respectable, mm. like the leading human rights um, commission in Victoria. And the amount of backlash from the on the ground people was incredible. I mean, senior leadership, I think because by virtue of them being senior leadership and also probably being a bit better educated um, than on the ground people um, were, you know, all trumpeting it. Mm. But the sentiment did not flow down. And I remember feeling really, really disheartened and kind of disgusted Mm. because there's all these stupid men just being like, this is going, political correctness going too far, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, you actually need to listen to some of these allegations because there are allegations of your fellow colleagues getting raped by other, Mm. their colleagues and like horrific shit going on. Um, and, and just systemic sex discrimination. Mm. I suppose there's always upheaval when you're challenging the status quo. I know. And usually that upheaval is going to come from those people that are having their power challenged in some way. These were all the same people that were like, why isn't there an international men's day breakfast? Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then did you correct them and say, actually there is an international men's day. I think someone, someone in the message board did, but then like, I think someone really high up was like, the reason there isn't one is because the International Women's Day Breakfast is organised by a group of volunteers. So if you want to do the men's <laughs> one, then you can volunteer to do it yourself. And let me guess, were most, if not all, of the volunteers women? Uh, for the men's day one? No, 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 for the women's. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the guys aren't good. <laughs> exactly. Can like, you imagine a guy like putting their hand yeah. up to host the breakfast? It's like, hey, men's, <laughs> rally around then and I mean, fucking do something. One of the good things about being a woman is that we always get these things, you know, one of the offshoots of um, all the... Uh, labor that women unpaid <laughs> labor that women sort of pull around the workplace we so get an annual breakfast you get that we organize yeah good events that we organize <laughs> um okay so that's your third one yes um and i think um what you wanted to talk about next was sort of although i feel like there's a bit of overlap between the last question and this question but the lesson or lessons that you would take from the last decade into the coming decade Oh, lessons of twenty the 2010s. Mm. Um, I think there is, you're right. There are significant overlaps between this and some of my top things from the decade. Mm. And I think that is mostly not to take your life aspect for granted. I think when you're starting out in your career, and, you know, I'm not going to say this isn't the right way to do it, but um, there's a lot of pressure to put everything into your career, mm. which is fine. And I don't think I do things necessarily do things differently because um working hard has got me to where I am now but I think understanding that there is the life side of it and you shouldn't be neglecting that Mm. for the sake of your career and I feel like almost kind of preachy about it now when I see um like new grads and stuff who are pulling in ridiculous hours and like because we've had a few years of experience and you know a less you know, fearful of being fired. Um, a part of me is like, does 
this really have to be done tonight? Like, mm. can you do it tomorrow morning? Um, is someone going to die if you don't finish drafting that affidavit today? Mm-hmm. Noting that court closes at four, like the registry closes at four anyway, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's a matter of less performative behavior at work and, and assessing that. And I think um, one of one of my friends who um, works at one of these firms, you know, works crazy hours she was saying that one of her grads um used to just leave at 5 30 um to play football and he does sound like a bit of an arrogant fucker and it also (laughs) helps that he was friendly with the partner Uh, but it i'm kind of respect him because it's like yep 5 30 is my time Mm. and if there is something and you know obviously i'm hoping there wasn't something that needed to be done and if there was that he'd come back and do it (laughs) But or if he's like palming off his work to her. I think he was palming yeah, off his work. Yeah, and to her. requiring her to then do longer hours than she's doing. But I was like, why don't more women take that attitude? And I think it's because we can't. Like a lot yeah. of the time. But guys, like, I view differently in that sense because this dude, it's like, oh, football, it's the absolute commitment. Like he has to do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I said I was going to leave at 5 30 to do yoga, it might be viewed a bit differently. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the point I'm trying to make is that maybe we need to, like, extend that notion of acting like a mediocre white man to that extent and to say – and it doesn't have to be I have to leave at five on the dot to pick up my kid, but it's like I have to leave at this time because I have to do this commitment. That is my life commitment rather than selling an awful work. Mm. And that's not to say, you know, not doing – and that's the other thing that shits me, like when people don't do something that needs to be done. Like I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's a matter of prioritising and also making it clear to your employer about your priorities. Mm. Um, And I think that comes much later in the game because, like, millennials, we're always criticised for being entitled, entitled to our rights, entitled to stuff like that. And I've had that levelled at me once um, in a a tongue-in-cheek way, but she was, like, saying, oh, you article clerks these days feel like they have all the rights in the world. And it's like, well, yeah, I do have the right to work an eight-hour day. (laughs) Um, and if no one's going to die because I don't attend to something, then I will do it tomorrow mm. because the client will actually benefit from that mm. rather than me being like half dead and mm. typing out something that's like error ridden. I guess my only apprehension with your suggestion that we sort of be more vocal about, you know, exercising our rights at work is the fact that it will be treated differently. Yeah. Like, you know... I would like to think that, yeah, my commitments would be taken no less seriously than those of my male colleague. But research, especially in the law, which is still by and large a really conservative profession, shows that women have to work, you know, twice, three, four, five times as hard to get to the same sort of levels as men do. And so it does feel like pulling those extra hours and taking on those extra commitments is just the price of being a woman in the legal profession. But I guess for us now that we're sort of like hopefully heading towards leadership positions, I would like to see myself like modelling that behaviour on people who are under me. Mm. Like I want particularly young women to feel like they can like park work and it's not, I'm not going to penalise them Mm. for doing, for prioritising life in addition to work. Like I think they're like my workplace is really good. Like we work generally pretty ordinary hours except for sometimes when you you do need to really like work crazy hours Mm. 
but it happens every now and then. Like, you know, it's just a, the price of doing the business that we do. But um, there's always a respect for, you know, if you need to go to a medical appointment or if you need to do this or that. And so I'd want to see that behaviour modelled off wherever I go, mm. which is, yeah, people have a life outside of this place mm. and you don't need to sell your soul to live here. Like I, um, another friend was saying that, you know, she was offered as a common opportunity, but they, the partner wanted her to make an assurance that she would be committed to the firm for another five years. Now that's a ridiculous yeah. thing to Who ask. the hell can commit to the next five years of their life? Yeah, for someone who's in their late 20s, so potentially wants to do travel and, mm. you know, if you're doing the London thing, you need to do that soon. Um, or she might have family aspirations. Mm-hmm. Who knows? But it was just an absurd proposition. And mm. so obviously she couldn't in good faith do it. Mm. I mean, if it was me, I would have done it. I would be like, sure, five years. And then just, what, quit a year or two yeah. in when you're sick and tired of it? I yeah. don't know. I don't know anyone's shit. And I think that's the other thing about, like, our generation – because the workforce is becoming increasingly volatile and casualized, Mm -hmm. you know, with um, more fixed term contracts and um, less job stability. I don't owe any workplace shit. Mm. And um, I think that's really empowering. Yeah. It's not like when we first started, when we were like, oh, I better toe the line, don't want to get fired. Mm. And now it's just like, whatever. Mm. Probably will be made redundant in a year anyway, so. Mm. (laughs) Might as well live it up. So I'm going to take the lazy option with this question, and I'm basically going to piggyback on the back of yours, because I think each and every one of the learnings that I've taken from this past decade have basically been in support of what you've just said, that... Work is not everything, that I have value outside of the work I do and that there are so many other aspects of my life that I want and need to invest in in order to actually live a happy and healthy life. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's what I need to sustain in the coming decade, even when I am going to, you know, go back to undergoing a lot of change and applying for jobs, Mm. that no matter what I end up doing, that I can't let go of all this progress I've made in terms of my life outside of work. And I think it's understanding your inherent value and worth mm. independent of work. I think it sounds like you've had to sort of grapple with the same things as like me in the sense of like your work and how hard you work doesn't necessarily reflect on who you are as a person and, mm. and your inherent value. Yeah. And I don't know if you have this at all, but When it comes to my work, I think I've especially derived a real sense of value when I feel like I'm helping people. Mm, Like, oh, if I'm there for my family or if I'm there for my friends or if I'm there for my partner, then I am inherently worthy and deserving of, like, love and happiness and health. When it's like, well, actually, independent of all of those things, I am still worthy of all of those things. And I think that's actually taken a lot of therapy. Oh, yeah. So much therapy. So many thousands of dollars. I must say, though, having, like, friends who are really into this stuff, like one of our friends, Annika, is extremely into psychology but also Mm. a lot of, like... um, Just self-development and self-improvement, I think. Well, a lot of these things initially came from her and also came from Nick. Um, Mm. He, who is just inherently a very self-assured person, but her, from a lot of her Mm. um, research and learning... Um, that she's done 
independently, mm-hmm. both of them have said the same things essentially that like the psychologists have said too. Yes. And so, um, yeah, no, I think that's a really solid, solid thing to take from the decade. Hmm. Mm. So I guess that leaves us at the end of this pretty long episode. Okay? <laughs> um, I guess we will see what happens next year. Yeah. We're leaving it pretty open-ended. Yeah.